Welcome back from lunch to this uh, panel discussion on the topic of uh, should government promote morality. We have with us a wonderful panel of people uh, this afternoon to discuss the topic. In the order in which they're going to speak, uh, we'll begin with uh, Professor Marcus Cole, who is the Helen L. Crocker Faculty Scholar and Professor of Law at Stanford Law School. Um, Marcus is a graduate of Northwestern Law School uh, and uh, clerked for Judge Morris Arnold on the U.S. Court of Appeals, and he is a very, very much a friend of, of the law schools, and we are all happy to welcome him back to Northwestern. Uh, we will then hear from Professor Lino Agralia. Lino is the A. Dalton Cross Professor at the University of Texas School of Law. Uh, Lino is a longtime friend of the Federalist Society, and there's, he bears a special distinction, which I should comment on, which is he is the only person speaking at this 25th anniversary student conference of the Federalist Society who also was a speaker at the first uh, Federalist Society student conference in 1982. <laughs> Um, we will then hear from Professor Lillian Arbavir, uh, who is the David and Mary Harrison Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia Law School. Professor Bavir is also a longtime supporter of the Federalist Society and is a member of the Society's Board of Visitors. And then finally, after Professor Bavir speaks, uh, I will make some brief comments. Professor Stephen Lubet from Northwestern was supposed to join us today, uh, but was unable to at the last moment, minute, so that will leave more time for discussion and for uh, question and answers. Let's begin with Professor Cole. Thank you very much, Steve. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, the students here at uh, Northwestern, uh, the Northwestern chapter of the Federal Society. It's a great, great honor to be asked to come back here. I still think of Northwestern as my home. Uh, I think of uh, Chicago as my hometown, and I'm uh, really excited to be back. Um, it's especially meaningful uh, to be back here for this conference uh, because it was uh, in this chapter that I served as uh, a vice president uh, of the Federal Society 16 years ago. Um, and so it's, uh, it's, um, it's nice to uh, uh, be back uh, for the. Uh, by the way, that's not a real important distinction because. When I was a student here, the Federal Society was so small that being vice president meant that you were the one who lost the election. Um, um, but I'm, I'm really happy to be here. This is a great law school. It's a place where I, uh, I met my mentors, Randy Barnett, Steve Calabresi, Gary Lawson. Uh, and I'm, uh, I'm delighted to be back. Um, when I was uh, invited to speak at this conference, um, I, was, I was invited to talk about uh, uh, gambling, smoking, and drinking, government's role in promoting morals. And my, my first reaction uh, to this invitation was to try to imagine uh, the facial expressions of my colleagues at Stanford when they learned that um, I spoke on a panel where I actually had panelists uh, to the right of me. Um, my second reaction, however, was similar to John Baker's last night, which was that I think I ought to try to reframe uh, the question, not to try to, uh, to gain uh, a, a debating advantage, but instead to try to understand exactly what it is 
we're trying to uh, uh, settle here. So I'm going to do just that. So first, I want to explain what I think we're talking about when we talk about, as the great Lon Fuller described it, the morality of law. And as such, I want to distinguish in a similar way to that, uh, uh, the distinction made by Randy Barnett last night, between two different types of moralities of law. Second, I want to explore uh, why it is that we seem to have an inclination to legislate virtue. And I think that this inclination owes more to history than to our nature. Uh, and third, uh, and finally, I want to suggest that it's a mistake to look to government for moral guidance, uh, even in the rare case when we can agree on moral principles. It's a mistake because if you really care about the quality of something, you just can't leave it to civil servants. <laughs> So, what do we mean when we talk about government's role in promoting morals? I completely agree with Professor Rick Garnett uh, when he said in his introduction last night that law is at its core a moral enterprise. There cannot be any doubt of this. I think it is important, however, to distinguish between the appropriate level at which law is driven by morality. Professor Lon Fuller in his book, The Morality of Law, distinguished between two different types of morality. And I actually thought that Randy Barnett last night was going to mention uh, this distinction when he, when he talked of the difference between uh, public and private morality. But I think Lon Fuller's uh, distinction is actually more helpful um, uh, to this debate uh, than the one provided by Randy last night. Uh, and the two types of morality with which uh, uh, he felt the law dealt uh, can be thought of as the morality of aspiration and the morality of duty. The morality of aspiration, according to Fuller, is that conception of moral principles to which humans ought to aspire. It's the good life of virtue to which Professor Barnett referred last night. It's the higher standard of morality to which my church hopes I will conform and by which I pray to God my two little sons will someday be characterized. They're not there yet if you've uh, ever seen them in action. Um, the morality of duty, on the other hand, is that lower standard of morality and behavior uh, by which a much larger number of us uh, agree we ought to be judged, measured, and even constrained. These are the rules, according to Fuller, that we all must be expected to obey. This is, in the words of Fuller, a morality for the bad man. By this, Fuller meant that while virtue is that to which we all ought to aspire, there are certain basic rules that must be laid down to constrain those who have no desire to conform to the value shared by the rest of us. To put this all in concrete terms, we can think of laws regarding murder or theft as imposing the morality of duty. At the higher levels, we can think of uh, laws requiring church attendance or graduate level education as representative of laws imposing the morality of aspiration. This particular panel, originally entitled Gambling, Smoking, and Drinking, Government's Role in Promoting Morals, cannot be thought of as a, a, a panel about the morality of law generally or about the morality of duty. Everyone up here, I think, would agree that government ought to curb murderous or larcenous behavior. In Fuller's terms, the morality of duty is not at issue. It's the morality of aspiration about which we have disagreement. 
The question here isn't whether government has a role in prescribing morals. The real question is, at what level should the government prescribe morals? With Fuller's dichotomy in mind, we can now proceed uh, with a debate about government's imposition through law of the morality of aspiration. Should the government outlaw uh, or simply speak against gambling, smoking, and drinking, especially when it also benefits enormously from these activities? Uh, should the government pr promote the consumption of milk but denigrate the consumption of marijuana? Before we give our immediate yes or no response, I'm curious about why this is even a question. To put it another way, I find it curious that we seem to have an inclination to legislate virtue. So let me next address uh, this uh, inclination to legislate virtue. We think of the question, when we think of the question uh, this way, namely, should the government legislate virtue, we might want to ask where the inclination to ask such a question originates. In other words, why is it that we think it's a proper role of government to make us better people? Why do we assume this? I don't think the answer is to be found in our nature. In fact, I think that the idea that government is the proper source of moral guidance is more a product of, uh, of human history than our nature, and it's a relatively young idea. It hasn't always been a part of American culture or American law. In fact, Chancellor James Kent, author of Kent's Commentaries, and one of the most influential legal mind, American legal minds of all time, uh, for whom Chicago Kent College of Law was named, had a personal story that illustrates this point. According to Kent's grandson, he was waited upon by a temperance committee and urged to give his authority and sanction to the principles and aims of a mass meeting by adding his name to a list of those who had pledged themselves not to use intoxicating liquor. And when he was pressed unduly after his first polite negative, he made the following reply. Gentlemen, I refuse to sign any pledge. I have never been drunk, and by the blessings of God, I never will get drunk. But I have a constitutional privilege to get drunk, and that privilege I will not sign away. So Kent, the great reporter of American law, never had this inclination to presume legislative authority over his sobriety. And indeed, he, seems, uh, uh, he sees certain acts of immorality as a constitutional right. Nevertheless, today we seem to see virtue as the proper province of the state. Why? Um, it's indisputable that throughout most of the history of Western civilization, questions of morality were administered by institutions wholly separate from and competitive with the institutions that administered law. Separation in church of state predates Dr. Michael Newdow. It was de rigueur of Western history. The church and the state were quite literally separate and co-equal sovereigns. Prior to the Reformation, questions of whether gays could marry would never have been put to the king. Marriage was completely within the jurisdiction of the church, and similarly, the idea that enfeoffment of property might be a question for a bishop would have been laughable. Lands of the realm were the province of the king. Questions of morality were the province of the church and the ecclesiastical courts. Questions of property were the province of the king and the king's courts of law. When did questions of morality become the province of the king? Well, in Anglo-American legal history, this occurred when the state took over the role of the church by taking over the church. When did this happen? Well, this happened when a particular king of England found constraints of the church to constraining. In other words, I think we started looking to the state to define morality for us when the state found it necessary to imprison and execute a queen so that the king could hook up with a different hot babe who turned out to be not so hot. 
And so had to be executed so that another hot babe could take her place. In other words, um, and I admit to speaking from a, uh, from a particularly Roman Catholic perspective, uh, uh, the, the state became keepers of morality in order to enable the adultery of a head of state, and ever since then the state has assumed the traditional role of the church, namely to approve marriages, to make proclamations about moral behavior, and to educate children. So that brings me to my third and final point, namely that if those of us who seek virtue look to government to promote it in others, we're likely to be disappointed. Why? Why can't the government provide us with moral guidance? Well, what is government? Is it something better than us? Is it practiced by those higher than us? Public choice theory has provided us with lots of reasons beyond those of the founders to mistrust pure democracy. We now know that majoritarian processes uh, can be limited and corruptible uh, by log rolling, condorcet cycling, and arrows theorems, so that we wind up with special interest le legislation that doesn't even represent the views of the majority. So why would um, morality legislation be immune from these legislative infirmities? Furthermore, even if legislation actually reflected the majority will, why would we expect 51% of the electorate to be particularly moral? The simple and easy examples of the duly elected chancellor of Germany in the 1930s and 40s, as well as Jim Crow legislation throughout the South and the eugenics projects of the so-called progressive movement of the early 20th century should disabuse us of the notion that majorities are always moral majorities. But even if the majority were always a moral majority, we should still be reluctant to turn over the reins of our moral aspirations to it. Why? Well, our experience with such things should be instructive. I was giving a lecture in Germany two weeks ago, and afterwards I picked up a copy of the European edition of Newsweek. The cover story was about the current condition of churches and cathedrals all across the European community. The sad fact of the matter is that church attendance in Europe is now so low that many churches are completely empty on Sundays. In fact, according to Newsweek, the hottest trend across Europe is to find novel commercial uses for, build, for these buildings in order to generate revenue necessary to maintain them. Because these uh, structures are protected by law, they can't be raised, and uh, in many countries they must be, by law, maintained. So instead, they raise revenue by renting the space for commercial purposes. So there's a church in Torino, uh, Torin, Italy, that is currently being used as a pizzeria. Yes, a pizzeria right on the altar. Uh, the hippest nightclub in Munich is the sanctuary of a cathedral. A Frankfurt church has been turned into a spa. You can literally soak away your troubles in the catacombs. As a Christian, this makes me sad and even uh, outraged, but I want to make it clear that I'm not making the mistake that John Baker last night accused so many of, namely conflating religion with metaphysics. But as a lawyer, I can't resist an apt, uh, an apt analogy. With established government-supported churches in Europe sitting empty while our, while our tax-dollar-deprived churches in America are bursting to the seams every Sunday, why would we want to adopt a socialized model of virtue? We don't let civil servants build stealth bombers, provide health care, or distribute our food. We don't let civil servants do anything we really care about. When we do turn over... When we...
when we do turn over our aspirations to the state, they make a mess of it. I can personally lead you on a guided tour of Chicago public schools and as well as the Chicago Board of Education's headquarters, which, by the way, are more lavish than any uh, law firm that you're going to find down here on LaSalle Street. And you'll understand from that tour why throwing more money at public education is not going to solve our problem with public education. When it comes to our schools, as an example, we would have done much better to keep prayer in our schools while getting government out. This is not to say the government doesn't do certain things well. It does. But those things are all along the lines of what Fuller describes as the morality of duty. It, it's great at collecting things, taxes and information, for example. Um, but it's, rel it's, relatively, it's relatively good at things like defense and policing the things we call criminal harms. But asking government to compete with freedom when it comes to our aspirations, well, that's simply asking government to jump higher than it's capable. So if you really care about morality, why would you let government anywhere near it? Thank you. The question of this panel is government promotion of moral issues, gambling, smoking, and advertising. What is that? I take it the question is, should government regulate these activities on a moral rather than a purely utilitarian basis? Now, like Professor Ron Allen, who gave this great talk this morning, I tried to avoid all talk of morality, even the use of the word. When it comes up in class, the students ask me, is something moral? Uh, I tell them, as a humble person, I leave that to their priest. I'm here to talk about law. <clears throat> as uh, Justice Holmes, uh, my idol, said, uh, ascending the steps to the Supreme Court once, he was told, someone said to him, uh, Judge, uh, do justice. And he said, lady, that's not my job. I'm a judge. I'm supposed to apply the law. So uh, I take it, the question is, should we, these reg government regulate these activities on a moral, ra whatever that is, rather than a purely utilitarian basis? Utilitarianism itself, of course, is a theory of morality. It tells us that the rightness or wrongness of an action depends on its consequences. I don't see how anyone can argue with that. How is it possible, at least for a secularist, not claiming a pipeline to the divine, to judge an action except by its consequences. The usual answer in Kantian tradition is by its inherent justice or rightness, which somehow is to be determined apart from consequences. This leads to the argument, do justice though the heavens fall. If doing what we think is, and that is, even though it brings about an unimaginable disaster, I think this has to be wrong. If doing what we think is justice will bring about an un unimaginable disaster, we obviously should rethink our idea of justice. The alternative is the kind of fanaticism illustrated by the Taliban's uh, destroying the Buddhist statues. So if the question is, should government regulate conduct, restrict liberty, 
On grounds other than its consequences, my answer, of course, is no. Government should regulate conduct only to produce net beneficial consequences, sufficient to overcome the cost of restricting liberty. The difficulty in is in determining the consequences of an action, and they can vary depending on how far into the future you look. It is therefore often necessary to make decisions according to rules found to be generally useful. Amy Wax was saying something like this in part. Uh, without attempting to determine the actual consequences of the action uh, in each case, and accepting that decision-making according to rules necessarily produces sometimes suboptimal results. The source of the disagreement between Kantian moralists and utilitarians is that the Kantians seek a greater degree of certainty than is available by claiming that some rules are absolute. Some libertarians, which we have many in the Federal Society, of course, such as John Stuart Mill, make a similar mistake when they try to answer all problems with, uh, to quote Mill, quote, a very simple principle, unquote. Namely, government should limit individual freedom only to prevent harm to others, never to protect the individual from himself. The meaning of this turns, of course, on the highly debatable question on what is harm to others. More important, it doesn't work. The perhaps less brilliant, but eminently more sensible jurist, James Fitzjames Stevens, answered Holmes, quote, the state of our, of our knowledge is not such as to enable us to enunciate any, quote, very simple principle, unquote, as entitled to govern absolutely the dealings of society with the individual in the way of compulsion and control, unquote. That is, we don't know enough to be able to settle all questions of legal coercion with a single simple rule. Whether prostitution or the use of drugs should be legalized, for example, should depend not on any a priori principle, but on the consequences, as best we can judge them, of legalization. The same is true as to legal regulation of gambling and smoking, two of my assigned topics. The answer cannot be found in a single principle that is then to be enforced by the courts, making it really bad, as a supposed principle of constitutional law. Indeed, on issues of public policy, constitutional law is often the last resort of scoundrels a means of avoiding consideration of a problem on the merits and defending an indefensible position. For example, I once debated the then famous do-gooder Arthur Fleming, who was then chairman of the Civil Rights Commission, uh, on the merits of busing, a big television program, busing for school racial balance. If busing, I asked, is self-defeating, actually producing less rather than more integration, and is causing riots, why should we continue to do it? Because, he said, it's the Constitution. Complete answer. Justice Robert Jackson's famous answer to that, of course, was the Constitution is not a suicide pact. It cannot compel us to do foolish things. I think I saw the, the same uh, approach in the argument last night of Dr. Newdow. The vast majority of Americans don't believe that all government of recognition of religion should be excluded. But nonetheless, he should win. His position should prevail, he says, because it's the Constitution. 
This has all been authoritatively settled already, so let's not talk about it anymore. Which there's really no basis for saying. I see the same thing again, much more seriously, in Professor Moore. He tells us that all government uh, discrimination on the basis of sex is prohibited. We don't, don't need to talk about that anymore. It's prohibited. Why? Because there's the word equal in the 14th Amendment. And that settles it. Even though the 14th Amendment was thought by no one to have anything to do with sex discrimination. Indeed, sex discrimination, as I said, was usually given as the example or the paradigm of the most clearly justifiable discrimination. But no, we're arguing that because, you know, to me that is silly. It's childish. It doesn't rise to the respectability of, say, of uh, astrology. But it, that's typical of constitutional law. <laughs> So I say, it's, it's a means largely of avoiding thought. To answer <clears throat> two of my questions, the government, the government can, but probably should not, ban smoking. Although it is moving towards that result by placing limits, uh, by putting limits on places where it's permissible to smoke. It's getting so pretty soon that you, that you won't find the place you can smoke. The government also can and probably should ban cigarette advertising. It is perfectly sensible to permit people to sell a harmful product, but prohibit them from encouraging its use. How about gambling? Should government prohibit it, permit it, permit but discourage it, or permit and encourage it? Again, to avoid the limitations of trying to apply a general principle, we should consider that gambling has many different forms, and different ones may require different treatment. But whether or not one would prohibit some forms of gambling, few people, even libertarians, I suppose, would argue that government should encourage it as a positively good thing. But that is exactly what most states are actually now doing in connection with state-operated lotteries. Although lotteries were once banned in every state but Nevada, recognized as sort of a, a national red light district. <laughs> uh, in, in recent years, they've been legalized almost everywhere. They were legalized, although supposedly recognized as an evil, lotteries, only to avoid even greater evil of illegal lotteries or other gambling, or even worse, money going to other states. <laughs> Besides, it was said, lotteries would raise money that would go to support education. And except for saving the whales, nothing is more important than everybody have more education, regardless of desire or ability. <laughs> so you can't travel around Texas, for example, today without seeing billboards and other advertising advising people of the riches available to them by purchasing lottery tickets. Purchase is not the word used, however. It's called playing the lottery. People are being invited to participate in a fun game. Some people play tennis and golf. Others, almost an entirely different group, play the lottery. <laughs> Encouraging people, likely to be almost entirely poor people, to buy lottery tickets cannot, I think, be a good social policy. But lottery play players, libertarians will tell you, are, after all, adults, 
And it's their money. If they would rather spend it on an impossible dream uh, rather than on more or better food, clothing, or housing, or other forms of recreation, it's their choice, and we should respect it. I agree there should be a strong presumption in favor of government leaving people alone, that all restrictions on human freedom require justification. That is a good principle, but again, it should not preclude thought. Sometimes there is sufficient justification in the opinion of most people. When it appears obvious to most people that some other people are engaging in an activity that is harmful to themselves, and especially their children, and therefore harmful ultimately to society as a whole, it has to be permissible and appropriate for society to prohibit that activity. It is true that uh, that this argument has led to such things in the past as a majority coercing a minority's religious beliefs in order to give them the ultimate good of saving their souls. But all that tells us is the need to make distinctions is unavoidable. It is not true, as the ACLU tells us, that if we ban Hustler, tomorrow we'll be banning Hamlet. I, uh, I thought I was skipping something here. Um, uh, the uh, result of constitutional law, I say it's the last uh, resort of scoundrels, actually it's usually the first resort. The, the, res the result of constitutional law is that we can have serious questions in America occupying the attention of some of our best minds that could not arise anywhere else because they would correctly be seen as silly. For example, only in America, as the saying goes, can you find learned academics arguing that although the government can ban cigarettes altogether, it cannot take the lesser step of banning only cigarette advertising. That's really argued by academics. Why? Because it's the First Amendment. The First Amendment does that. Illustrating, I think, George Orwell's famous statement that some ideas are so preposterous only the highly educated can believe in them. <laughs> you know, that's not a bon mot. That's, that's true. You spend all your life thinking. You can come up with things that a truck driver never could. <laughs> all right. To conclude... Banning lotteries should not be seen as presenting a more difficult question than banning false advertising. In both cases, the government interferes with free choice in order to protect people from products it considers harmful or ineffective, even though some others may consider them beneficial. The government, I conclude that the government probably should ban lotteries, and I see no question at all as to the desirability of its banning at least the advertising of lotteries. Thank you. Well, I'm going to start by remembering that I was at the 1986 Federalist Society Student Symposium, and it was a kind of a small group there, and I remember Jean Meyer has recently reminded me of something that I said as we gathered um, at a very small table, uh, a very small group of people for lunch, and I said, you know, this is a great society. It's a great organization. It's too bad it can't last. I really like being wrong about that one. 
Um, I want to begin, if I may, by just making one brief comment about that, that actually brings to mind a question that I would ask both Professor Cole and, and Professor Gralia, in particular Professor Cole's argument that virtue is beyond the aspirations of the state, and Lino's argument that only utilitarianism, uh, only whether it works, uh, can be the argument in contemporary debate. Um, this is sort of an odd example, but it has to do with the public accommodations title of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 which did away with state-sanctioned uh, racial discrimination in public accommodations, hotels, restaurants, motels, theaters, things of that nature. In, it was particularly prominent and prevalent in the South and not in other parts of the country. I, I make the comment because unlike I think most of you in this room, and I think unlike Professor Cole, I was... Uh, around for that debate. I remember it very well, and I remember the debate in particular about Title II, uh, which is the public accommodations title. Um, I would suggest to you that it, 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 you might think that um, all the other difficult aspects of the Civil Rights Act apart, um, the segregation in public facilities of um, people on the grounds of race is, is a pretty easy call. That is something that is wrong. At least I think it's fair to talk about it in, in moral terms. Um, most, many, most politicians at least publicly espoused that position as well. Not all of them, but most of them did. But not all of the politicians who publicly espoused the wrongness of racial discrimination in public accommodations uh, were in favor of Title II. And one of the most frequently invoked arguments against the public accommodations title of the Civil Rights Act was you can't legislate virtue. It won't work to try. Indeed, the effort will be counterproductive and to attempt it will just needlessly arrogate power to the federal government. Well, an answer to that was uh, maybe you can't legislate virtue, but you can prohibit immoral conduct, which is what Title II did. And in that respect, it did, it, it did in fact, legislate virtue. Um, I would disagree with any suggestion that Title II, which is the only title of the Civil Rights Act I'm talking about in this brief comment, has been or is an interest instrument of horrific violation of any moral precept whatsoever. I do hope that during the question period, perhaps Professor Cole will tell me what his views are about Title II. Does it prohibit immorality or or, and thus try to legislate virtue? And if so, uh, would he condemn it? Or does he regard it as a somewhat unique counterexample with respect to his general thesis? Or is he likely to take refuge in the argument that um, the court eventually was able to buy, which is that the act is not about virtue or morality. The act is about interstate commerce. Um, <laughs> I digress from my point that I, a couple of points I wanted to say. Um, and, and my talk is, is not so much about what my political philosophy is, actually. It's, it's really quite different. One of the questions that the panelists were invited to consider was this. Is there any defense for government both discouraging and encouraging the same activity? Uh, and if not, why does it happen? 
the obvious examples of government uh, doing both are smoking and gambling, to which Professor Gralia has, has referred. It's correct and persuasive, in my view, uh, to point to the seeming idiocy of a legal regime that permits smoking but forbids its, ad, its truthful advertising. It's right to point to the moral blindness, the political cowardice, and indeed the corruption of a political system that both prohibits gambling and raises revenues for education, no less, by sponsoring state-run lotteries. Uh, it seems to me the combination of laws that regulate or prohibit gambling on the one hand and at the same time sponsor and raise revenue from state lotteries on the other lend themselves to a, to a pretty easy political economy story, uh, not a very nice one, but it's a pretty easy one, uh, about politicians who want to seem to indulge their uh, constituents' professed moral abhorrence of gambling while at the same time exploiting their citizens' irresistible urges to take a chance on a quick windfall, and all the while filling the state coffers without having to incur the political cost of raising taxes. Even though I understand, at least in part, I think, why state legislatures pursue them, I don't think it would be possible for me to tell you all the reasons why I think state lotteries are positively immoral, and you'll be very happy to know I'm not going to try to do that. I want to talk about another issue about which government both discourages and encourages the same activity, and that activity is abortion. The first thing we have to note here, and this is very important, uh, we could have noted it about government schizophrenia about smoking as well, is that to talk about the government both discouraging and encouraging abortion disguises the fact that government is not a unitary thing and that the encouraging and discouraging of abortion are being done by different branches of the government. Do we know this? Oh, yes, we know this. Roe versus Wade endorses abortion, gives the right to an abortion constitutional status, and does so on grounds that the court seems to think have substantial and important moral underpinnings. But Roe versus Wade, as we know, is a decision of the Supreme Court, not of the political branches, either state or national. So, does the question that our, that our panel was asked to address uh, mean to imply that the explicitly political branches of the government, state legislatures, Congress, and all other political actors are supposed to just roll over and play dead over how this particular moral issue is resolved? Does it imply that they're supposed to leave the moral battlefield and accept the defeat of their moral principles if they differ with those embraced by the court? because to stay in the fray would cause the government to both encourage and discourage abortion? I, I would argue that those who believe that abortion is immoral must use what constitutional power remains to them uh, to legislate to discourage the practice. And they must cast their side of the debate in explicitly moral terms. They've done this, of course, in a variety of ways, by denying federal funding for abortion, by prohibiting doctors in federally funded family planning clinics to counsel their patients about abortion, by enacting parental notification and spousal consent laws, and by prohibiting or trying to prohibit um, partial birth abortion. And though it's been unwilling to overturn Roe versus Wade, uh, the Supreme Court, or five of its members uh, from time to time, has been perhaps surprisingly accommodating of these moral-based moral legislative judgments. 
There's an interesting story to be told, I think, about this middle ground that the court has occupied um, on the issue of abortion since Roe. But this is not the time to consider that particular, though very interesting, tale of unprincipled uh, judicial decision-making. There are many things that might be said about Roe and about its wholly unanticipated and highly divisive uh, political fallout. But one thing that cannot, I think, be said in all fairness is that casting the debate in explicitly moral terms is inappropriate uh, because it causes the government both to encourage and discourage the same activity. How could political actors who think abortion is immoral have done anything but try to discourage what the court has so blithely decided uh, to permit? Uh, this brings me to the second point I want to make today, and it's quite a different one, and it's a very, very practical point rather than a philosophical one. But I think it's vaguely germane uh, to this panel, uh, and I hope that... <clears throat> I hope that's enough. I construe the question about government promotion of moral issues to raise several kinds of issues in addition to those of political philosophy, if you will, that Professors Cole and Gralia talked about. The issue I want to raise reflects a much more practical, pragmatic, realistic, if you will, approach to the topic. It builds somewhat upon, but is different from Professor Gralia's observation, or what I think he was his observation, that when you ask what government should or should not do, you have to take the question issue by issue. And the point I want to make is a point about political rhetoric and the proper boundaries of legitimate political argument in contemporary politics. Um, I understand and, and agree with what Professor Cole said about um, some of the difficulties in trusting the political process. It, it may very well be so inherently trust, untrustworthy that we're, um, uh, we can only believe in it or trust it as compared to our alternatives. But I think there are some things that we need to be clear about when we're thinking about contemporary political argument. First, with a couple of exceptions, one of which I've just talked about, we're not talking about the present limits of government's power, its constitutional power, to enact laws in pursuit of moral ends. Those are very few and far between. And also, with a couple of exceptions, the ends that the government has the power to pursue are ends that the government has power also to promote and to spend money for. That is to say that neither the spending clause nor the First Amendment pose genuine or pervasive obstacles to the government's decision to promote or not promote certain activities, to spend or not to spend, to fund or not fund programs on account of moral judgments about what citizens should or should not do or what they should be encouraged to do or not to do. That's just a fact. I don't happen to like it very much, but I think it is a fact. And I think it's a fact of which we would do well to take account in this, in this debate or this panel. It's in the context of this fact that I want to talk about real political actors, people who either hold office or seek it. Uh, the implication of what Professor Cole and Graya had to say I think, maybe I'm pushing their arguments or their implications too hard, is that real political actors can make only one 
kind of decision, one legitimate kind of decision, and I take it to mean that they can only make one legitimate kind of political argument about what government should do. I infer that Professor Cole would regard politicians' arguments about government policy cast in terms of promoting virtue or discouraging unvirtuous behavior or promoting morality. Uh, he would say that they are almost always out of bounds. He would say, don't do it and don't talk about it. I think. And I infer that Professor Gralia would say that arguments about what government should and should not do that are cast solely in terms of promoting morality or discouraging immorality are essentially, as I hear him right, irrelevant. They're irrelevant because the only thing that matters in policy debates is whether policies work. What I want to raise, though, is the question of whether a real political actor one who seeks or has political office can hope to remain quite so pure when engaged in political debate. In other words, it seems to me that a person who's actively engaged in politics, in the politics of policymaking in a democracy, might well cast his own philosophical lot with either one of these positions but regardless of where they cast their philosophical lot, such people must take the political world as they find it, ugly as it is. It's the world we have. And when you look at the world that is inhabited by real political actors, not only is it true that there are few meaningful limits on what they may do if they can assemble the votes for it, but it's also true that a whole lot of political arguments uh, are about what is the moral thing for government to do. What is it moral for government to let citizens do? Moral arguments or arguments that are cast in terms of morality, I'm sure that a lot of our panelists uh, at this symposium would say, well, they're not really moral arguments. They think they're moral arguments, but they're not. They're just deploying the rhetoric of morality. But it sounds like a moral argument to the citizens who hear them. Um, they, they just happen to resonate. They happen to resonate with the, with the citizens. So, and I, I think that that's just, again, it's all there is to it. It's a fact. Now, maybe, maybe the reason is because most people want to be good and do good themselves. They want to be able to think of themselves as moral people. Maybe it's because people want the policies that their government adopts to be good and to do good both in terms of making more people better off than they make worse off, in terms of their consequences, in other words, um, by satisfying a utilitarian constraint of some sort, and in terms of reflecting morally appropriate choices. Because citizens want this, however vague their notions of what is good might be, and however uh, sort of loosey-goosey their notions of what constitutes morality, um, a politician, whether strict, a strict utilitarian or an unreconstructed libertarian, might, for very good reasons, look for and find ways to cast his own political arguments to his constituents, to the people whose votes he seeks, to his elected colleagues, uh, in terms of the virtue or morality of the policies he espouses. A strict utilitarian will do well to cast his arguments sometimes in terms I mean, in, in terms exclusively of costs and benefits, but also in terms of the relative morality of the positions that he espouses. 
I know I'm making an ends justifies the means argument. If you're going to play the political game because you have principles that you wish to see vindicated in the political process, you have to play, I think, to win. My argument, in essence, goes something like this. We live in a democracy. We elect those who govern us. To get elected, they have to persuade not only us, Federalists, but also our fellow citizens to vote for them and not for their opponents. To do this, they have to persuade not just us, but our fellow citizens that the policies that they would pursue are policies that ought to be preferred to the policies they're opponents would favor. And that is a whole lot of folks you have to persuade with wildly disparate amounts of knowledge, intelligence, interest, and philosophical leanings. And all of them have, or at least a majority of those who vote, have to be persuaded. Of course political actors are going at least sometimes to cast their political arguments, their arguments about the policies that they embrace in terms of the relative morality or virtue as compared to those embraced by their opponents. I, I actually don't think that this should be terribly troubling because um, it seems that there are so many times when a particular policy can be described either in moral terms or in utilitarian terms. I could cite a, just a ton of examples, but I'll just cite one and I'll conclude with that one. Uh, policy of encouraging sexual abstinence and marriage. The moral valence of such a policy is, I think, obvious. Um, the utilitarian one, perhaps less so, until we consider the devastation of sexually transmitted disease or look at the life prospects of children of unwed mothers, not to mention those of the mothers themselves, um, and of the children from fatherless homes. The moral arguments and the utilitarian arguments coalesce, and that is almost not, well, it's almost always the case, or it can, can often be made to be the case. So the question that I have is why should a politician actively engaged in democratic policymaking uh, limit himself to just one kind of argument when using both might increase his chances or her chances of persuading and prevailing in the political process. Thank you. The question before us is, should government promote morality, and if so, in what ways and to what degree? I've already said in my opening remarks to this conference that I think some separation between law, morality, and religion is inherent in the Western legal traditions that date back to ancient Rome. I also think that human nature is such that men cannot be perfected on earth by efforts to legislate morality and that major utopian efforts to legislate morality will fail both because they attempt the impossible and because the government leaders who implement those efforts will turn out to be fallen men and women themselves. But I do not think it follows from this that government cannot and ought not to promote morality at all. The content of our law is rooted in the moral precepts of our Judeo-Christian religious traditions. And it is frankly this content that helps to make our law just and worthy of being obeyed. No one here would argue, I presume, that positive law that is morally rudderless and violative of all fundamental precepts of human dignity 
like the law of Nazi Germany or of Stalin's Soviet Union, ought to be obeyed. Certainly Thomas Jefferson, the author of our Declaration of Independence, did not believe that a government that repeatedly denied us our God-given rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness ought to command our support. Jefferson did recognize, however, that the case for revolution was not to be made lightly or casually, and that only great violations of human freedom could justify a revolution. So at some level, government and law have to promote morality for the laws to be just and for them to command our support. This is most obviously true of those laws that prevent one person from directly harming another person by depriving that other person of life, liberty, or property. There's a widespread consensus in the West today that laws that prevent one person from directly harming another person are desirable ways in which government can and ought to promote morality. The harder question over the last 150 years in the West has been, what about laws that seek to promote morality where an individual has not directly harmed another individual? What about government efforts to promote morality by preventing people from harming themselves? as by drinking alcohol or gambling or engaging in prostitution or drug use or committing suicide or consuming pornography or for that matter engaging in mutually consensual dueling. Should these victimless crimes be decriminalized? Uh, in most of Western Europe these activities have been substantially decriminalized but in the United States the picture is more mixed. To begin with, it seems to me that the crimes in question are not in fact totally victimless. The most common victims of the so-called victimless crimes are children and other family members. When a person abuses alcohol or drugs or commits suicide uh, or behaves in other self-destructive ways, they hurt their children, they hurt their spouse, they hurt their parents and siblings, and they hurt their friends. So it really is a fiction to say that victimless crimes are victimless. There are always other people who get hurt in these situations. Just as fundamentally, a person who engages in activities that does damage to themselves, in these activities, does damage to themselves, and that is a moral wrong. Uh, actively doing harm to oneself is morally uh, problematic, although there will admittedly be gray areas where risky behavior may be warranted. That is, after all, why we outlaw dueling but allow professional boxing and football, or why we outlaw obscenity but protect the artistic depiction of nude bodies. Can the law police risky self-destructive behavior to allow what is valuable or prohibit what is not without bringing on the suffocation of a totalitarian state? I think the answer is a qualified yes, so long as we recognize several major limitations of law when it comes to paternalistic regulation. The first big limit on government paternalism is that efforts by government to promote morality by outlawing victimless crimes may run the risk of giving prosecutors enormous discretion in enforcing the law, discretion which can be and which will be abused to the detriment of racial minorities and individuals with unpopular points of view. The problem with the law against, for example, buying alcohol is that a lot of people will violate it at some point but not everyone will be prosecuted and jailed. The people who are prosecuted and jailed will be selected out for reasons that may turn out to be fairly arbitrary. A second problem with the law against buying alcohol is that it will be widely disobeyed, which will cause a lot of ordinary people to hold the legal system in less high regard. 
Laws that are widely disobeyed may cause some people at the margin not to obey other laws by fostering disrespect for the legal system. It's not costless to have laws on the books that nobody follows. A third problem with a morals law that is rarely enforced is that when it is enforced, the individuals against whom it is enforced may not really have had noticed that what they were doing was prosecutable. There's a due process question that arises with prosecuting people for laws that are not usually enforced. Now the conclusion that is usually drawn from the reservations I've just mentioned is that moral offenses ought to be decriminalized. And thus many libertarians argue for decriminalization of drugs, prostitution, and assisted suicide, just as we decriminalize the sale of alcohol when we uh, repeal prohibition. I'm opposed to decriminalization of morals offenses. I think too many people look to the law for teaching as to what is right and moral for decriminalization of morals offenses to be desirable. When we decriminalized gambling in the 1970s, there was an explosion in gambling, and lots of people concluded that because gambling was legal, it must be morally unproblematic for people to gamble. Even state governments became confused on the issue, and so we have the spectacle, which our previous speakers have mentioned, of many state governments sponsoring gambling through lotteries and advertising to affir affirmatively encourage their citizens to gamble. I'm convinced that if we legalized drugs, prostitution, and assisted suicide, there would be an explosion of morally self-destructive behavior in all these areas. I'm not even confident that the government would not encourage immoral behavior itself by, for example, selling drugs in state-owned for-profit stores, running state-owned brothels, or encouraging elderly Medicare patients to consider assisted suicide. Like it or not, the law teaches moral lessons, and people, especially in America, are quite prone to believe that what is legal is also moral. I, would, uh, I think in addition to the criminal law, however, there is another important tool that government has at its disposal that it ought to make more use of, and that is advertising. One of the most successful moral campaigns of all times has surely been the national government's anti-smoking advertising campaign. Smoking and lung cancer rates have decreased dramatically as a result of that campaign, and social disapproval of smoking is much higher now than it ever was in the 1960s. Part of the reason is that consumers are much better informed today about the health hazards of tobacco than they used to be. Advertising against tobacco has changed the climate of social opinion about the morality of smoking. The same thing could be done to a much greater degree than is currently being attempted with respect to drug abuse. Moreover, imagine the effects on gambling if government advertised to warn people that buying lottery tickets was an immoral waste of money instead of the government encouraging them to buy those tickets. All of this leads me to conclude with a suggestion on the great legislation of morality issue of our day, which is whether we should again criminalize some or all second and first trimester abortions. I think we should again outlaw abortions uh, with the punishment falling most heavily on abortion providers and not on the women seeking abortions because uh, abortion, uh, even more than drug abuse, is far from being a victimless crime. There is, after all, a victim with abortions in the form of an unborn child. But assume for the moment that advocates of decriminalized abortion are sincere when they claim in former President Bill Clinton's words that abortion ought to be safe, legal, and rare. 
What better way to start making legal abortions rare than for the government to run advertisements educating the people on the facts of fetal development and encouraging women to think, encouraging women thinking of aborting their babies to put them up for adoption instead? How many women who choose to have abortions know when fetal heartbeats begin or how early brain waves develop or how early unborn children begin to feel pain? Shouldn't these facts be as widely disseminated as the facts about the harms caused by smoking? Isn't a society that has a million abortions a year when many couples are yearning to adopt at least as uninformed as a society that widely tolerated smoking? Let's get government out of the business of advertising to encourage its citizens to buy lottery tickets and if it's going to regulate in the field of morality into the business of advertising to promote moral behavior. Thank you. I think if people could now come to the microphones, if you have questions, that would be great. And I will first give our panelists a brief chance to respond to previous comments that have been made. Uh, Professor Cole. Yes. Um, uh, I have a couple of responses uh, uh, to Professor Brevere's um, uh, observations and questions. Uh, first, um, I want to I want to say that. Um, I am uh, much, much older than I appear. Um, uh, my wife says it's because I don't work for a living, but um, um, I like to think in, in the words of the tortoise to uh, Bugs Bunny, clean living. Um, uh, so I am old enough uh, to remember the passage of the Civil Rights uh, Act, actually, um, and uh, uh, one of my most vivid memories as a child uh, was uh, the day uh, Dr. King was assassinated. Um, but I want to say that it's so typical of uh, statist arguments in defense of government to use society's development of responses to problems that the government itself created and then take credit for fixing something that it didn't even fix to begin with. I think one of the... One of the one of the best um, uh, accounts of this uh, uh, is Richard Epstein's book, which uh, uh, Forbidden Grounds, which I think is about 15 years old now, 15 or 16 years old, uh, where he demonstrates uh, that. Uh, that public opinion polls about race had changed dramatically so that by the time the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, uh, the conditions, the social conditions that the, the act was attempting to address were remedied. The other thing I want to point out about this is that I was born uh, at a time when my parents' marriage was illegal and immoral in the eyes of the state of Iowa. In fact, they had to flee Iowa. Uh, and it's due to the blessings of federalism that they were able to find a state, Pennsylvania, where their marriage was, in fact, legal and considered moral. And so I don't have that much faith in the majority's ability to distinguish between moral and immoral uh, 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 situations. Um, the, the fact of the matter is that later on, um, uh, the Supreme Court uh, uh, ruled that, uh, that, that such laws were uh, unconstitutional. But, the, but we've got to remember that Brown versus Board of Education predates 
the Civil Rights Act by 10 years. So it took at least 10 years for majorities and state legislatures to reach the place that the Supreme Court reached uh, in 1954. So, I mean, I... Um, uh, I think the same uh, applies to uh, Professor Calabresi's argument uh, about tobacco. I don't think that the, that the government's advertisement with respect to tobacco is what caused the change in social attitudes. I think social attitudes changed because of information about uh, the dangers of smoking. And it's so typical of statists to then say that, well, social attitudes have changed, it's the, the government that, uh, that uh, changed those attitudes. Uh, and I'm not, um, I'm not calling you names, Steve. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just pointing out that this is, this, is, uh, this is characteristic of the statist argument. Let's proceed in the order everyone's spoken, if it's okay. So Professor Gralia and then Professor Bevere. Uh, Professor uh, Bevere said, uh, in passing Title II of the 64 Act, public accommodation section, was it morality or something else? And it turned out it was regulation of interstate commerce, which, of course, is silly. It wasn't that at all. But no questions of morality. What does morality have to do with that? The, the Title II, ending race discrimination in public accommodations, was one of the most easily justifiable laws you can imagine, really beyond many others, in that it really broke a prisoner's dilemma. That is, it was not in the interest of hotels and restaurants to not serve blacks. They wanted to serve blacks. Their money was as good as everybody else if you were in the straightly in a profit business. But they couldn't because everybody else was, and if they served blacks, no one else, no whites would go. And so when that was ended, nobody, everybody could, could, no one could refuse to serve blacks. It was wonderful. But there's no question of morality, or I mean, I, I don't see anything is added by talking about morality. That's my problem with morality, I think, and very much the same as with the uh, talk about natural law. It seems to me it's so much just a semantic question. If someone wants to say, uh, let's not do that because it's moral or unjust or unfair, to me, you haven't advanced the ball any. You haven't told me anything. If someone says, well, why, if I ask why is it moral, then we, we get into why it's immoral. And I don't know what that can be other than the consequences. And so just ordinarily, it seems to me it's, uh, it's not helpful, it, although indeed, as Lillian says, it could be it's, it's, uh, very rhetorically uh, useful. Uh, certainly legislators uh, can talk about morality or do what they think uh, is moral, immoral. My objection is most of the court. About uh, government, as uh, Mr. Cold said, sometimes correcting the problem, or purporting to, that it itself caused, I know no better example than what the Supreme Court, again, my bete noire, has done with capital punishment. Uh, first, they said that you can't have capital punishment if the jury has too much discretion. And then they said, you can't have capital punishment if the jury doesn't have enough discretion. And they said, gee, the states never get it right on which of those it is. Indeed, it's so confused, we'll just have to abolish capital punishment. That was Blackman's argument. A perfect example of they're finally correcting a problem uh, that uh, uh, they, they caused themselves. Professor Bevere? Um, no, I, I've actually made the argument, too, about the prisoner's dilemma being broken by the Civil Rights Act of, 70, of 64, um, the public accommodation section. But um, I don't think social mores in the South would have quite gotten there by themselves, to be honest. I mean, I'm sympathetic with Richard's argument. I think it's, um, it's probably right, but I think it does overstate the limits of 
of those particular norms of behavior and how how they changed and that so um, and and I guess what you're what I understand you to say is that in the South it would have got they would have gotten there anyway with respect to public accommodations and I just am not as sure about that as you are and I'm not as sure about anything as Richard is so <laughs> if I may add to that Steve uh, uh, Mr. Cole said that uh, the legislature finally got to where the court was 10 years earlier when the court decided Brown prohibiting school segregation which was quickly understood to be a prohibition of all official racial discrimination in 1954 and that's what the legislature finally did 10 years later in, uh, in 1964. So the court was there 10 years ahead of time. But it wasn't. That is, it couldn't do what it uh, purported to do. It, it couldn't enforce Brown and didn't. You know, it said, uh, you can't racially discriminate, but you don't have to stop. We're going to decide next year what you have to do. The answer would seem very clear. If you can't assign kids to school by race, you don't assign them by race. But no, it was tough enough to require a new argument. And then, ten, then in the next argument, he says, no, you don't have to stop. Unique. And so uh, you only have to stop as soon as practicable. And Alabama said, fine, we'll stop as soon as practicable, which, of course, will be never. However, when, when, the, when Congress comes along with the 64 Act and says people who uh, keep segregating, they didn't even prohibit it. They said people who segregate don't get federal funds. Segregation ended. Within a year, it was no longer the case that anywhere in the country that kids were any longer assigned to school on the basis of race, just like that. It's even conceivable that it would have ended sooner. That's, I think, much more debatable. If the Supreme Court hadn't given it this 10-year grace period, but said, look, it's up, to the, it's up to Congress, and you would have continued to get the heat on Congress that you'd been getting. Uh, segregation was totally uh, disrespectable and unsupported in that period. And if they said the court hasn't done it, you would have gotten some uh, continuous pressure on Congress. They might indeed have ended it before 64. The Brown decision may have delayed it. Questions? Let's begin over here. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is uh, Jacob Mayhelt. I'm an exchange student from Amsterdam. I have a question for Professor Cole. Um, I think I agree with you that the state wouldn't be uh, the best moral authority, but uh, Professor Calabresi uh, gave some um, examples where uh, people see the law as their moral authority. So if you say that uh, government shouldn't be the moral authority for secular people who don't have another moral authority, what would be a good moral authority for them if the government wouldn't be there? Okay, so um, there are a couple of things there. Um, first, we have to ask why it is that people look to the government for moral guidance. And part of that, I think, can be explained because of public education. When the government has complete control of our classrooms, um, it's not surprising that the government seems to be the source of all that's authoritative. Um, second, I think that when government occupies that space, it also crowds out the opportunities for others to occupy that space. So, for example, in Europe, um, government uh, uh, occupies the space of the churches, uh, but here you find much more active, much more um, vibrant uh, church life, religious life in the United States, precisely because uh, the government is not uh, uh, the head of the church here. And it's, and it's that marketplace that will provide moral guidance for others. 
Professor Koppelman. Uh, yeah, Andy Koppelman, Northwestern University. Uh, there was enough discussion of uh, state lotteries and the proliferation of state lotteries uh, that I just wanted to hear people comment on the relation between that proliferation and the blessings of federalism, because I don't think the story got out about how state lotteries proliferated, although Lino alluded to it, I think, and I think that Lino knows it. I mean, what happened was that uh, one state started a lottery, and so the consequence was that the neighboring states suffered all of the pathologies of lotteries. They had you know, their citizens spending money on lotteries, and they themselves weren't getting any mo of the money. So they thought, well, you know, we've already got the problems of lotteries. We're not getting any benefits from it. We've got to start a lottery of our own. And then that spread out further. And so lots of states that themselves wouldn't have wanted to have lotteries, never did want to have lotteries, thought that lotteries were a bad idea, felt forced to have them because the neighbors had them. And uh, since this is the Federalist Society, I just like to ask, isn't this a cost of federalism? Isn't this a pathology of federalism? Isn't this the race to the bottom that people who uh, don't belong to the Federalist Society typically complain about? So if you think that moral laws are a good idea and you think that lotteries are a bad idea, I mean, this isn't necessarily an argument. It doesn't settle anything about federalism, but doesn't this have to count as a cost of federalism that because of federalism, we got laws all over the country that most of us don't want. Any of the panelists want to comment on that? Or shall I'll just take a, a little bit of a crack at that. I mean, first of all, your, your causal explanation is, is interesting, and, and it may very well have been a factor, but it's also true that um, the states just could observe one another and say, hey, that works, that looks like a pretty easy way to make a lot of money for the state and not raise taxes. So, yes, if one can do it, then the others see that either they're suffering all the costs and not getting the benefits, or that it works and it was not political suicide for the legislators to enact it. And they don't have to raise taxes and they can support education and so forth. Um, but I don't know what the answer would be. I mean, how, what, 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 what's implicit in your question is, well, should we not, should we do away with federalism or should we do away with state power to... My, qu my question is just, is this a cost of federalism? I wasn't making a well, proposal. Well, yeah, it's a consequence of federalism, I would say, and maybe it is a cost. I, I agree it's a, it's a cost of federalism. Um, it, federalism, of course, leads to competition and innovation among the states. If there were a general power in the national government to deal with competition and experimentation in the states, it would presumably allow the outlawing of same-sex marriage in Massachusetts or assisted suicide in Oregon as readily as it would outlaw the legalization of prostitution and gambling in Nevada. On balance, it's too dangerous to have that power in the federal government, at least in my own opinion. Um, over here. I think, let me say that I think that uh, Andy Koppelman is right that uh, federalism in this country is simply an annoyance. And a, and a game. Uh, that is, there is indeed there is in, there is indeed much to be said for leaving the maximum number of decisions on the local level. There's nothing to be said for that being a matter of law enforceable by the court, because most people in this country want a normal country, like other countries, where the national government can do what people want done, and that's what we have. Only what federalism means is you have to do it by sleight of hand. 
So if you want to end, end uh, racial discrimination by restaurants, you say, well, we're, we're regulating interstate commerce, right? Could the federal government have a law against kidnapping? Could it have a law against uh, sexual uh, 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 misuse? Of course not. You don't understand federalism. You don't understand the enumerated powers if you think that. Do we not have any such federal laws? Of course we do. They're just regulations of the state commerce. Right? So in Con Law 1, I teach the students, what you got to do is be tricky. Right? <laughs> this, of course, federal, American federalism is sleight of hand, and I want to teach it to you. That's why it annoys me when I hear people say, why are lawyers so sneaky and I says, lady, I spent a lot of time teaching that. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Simmer Singh, Northwestern. Um, question directed to Professor Cole and Professor Calabresi. Um, you spoke, I, I, I believe that you're kind of advocating utilitarian analysis of morality. And under that analysis, I think if you look at the cost of alcohol in society, I think estimates are in the billions of dollars. Yet, uh, yet it remains legal, whereas the cost of marijuana, at least the tangible cost of marijuana illegality is how much it costs to imprison people. And um, yet that, <clears throat> that remains illegal. And I'm just wondering, under this same analysis, would you advocate the legality of marijuana and the illegality of alcohol? And then to Professor Calabrese, I think you spoke to the fact that, um, that, uh, that, that it's not a legitimate criticism of morality or the government employing morality just because it's not easily enforceable. And under that same guise, I think prohibition was eventually repealed because it was proven to be completely unenforceable. Would you then concede that, uh, that, that just legislating on, on the basis of morality is completely impractical? So. Professor Cole, you want to go yeah, first? Okay, so um, I think um, uh, you have a. You, I think you have a. a, a you don't have an accurate um, picture of my argument um, because I'm, I'm not um, advocating a utilitarian or consequentialist uh, um, uh, vision of either government or uh, morality. Um, I'm first and foremost a Christian. And um, I believe that if, uh, if I had the ability to make everyone better off, um, if I had some power to make everyone abstain from things that are bad for them and do things that are good for them, I might do that. But I'm convinced that government can't do that. And so um, uh, I would be very reluctant to to even try uh, uh, through that means. But also being a Christian libertarian means that the, the foundation of, of my moral system is that for people to live moral, virtuous lives, they must choose it of their own free will. They can't be compelled by government or even an omniscient um, um, Benefactor to, to do so. So it's not it's not utilitarian or consequentialist at all. It's let, a, let me follow up on that, if I may, by asking you a question, which is, um, would you, if you were in a leg legislature, uh, legalize uh, drug use, prostitution, and uh, say dueling, which is a mutually consensual activity? Yeah. Okay. So, du dueling is a, is a is a tougher one. <laughs> 
drugs and prostitution, I think, absolutely should be legalized. I think that the devastation and destruction <laughs> that we see in our American cities is a product of the war against drugs. The war against drugs isn't a war against drugs. It's a war against poor people. Uh-huh. And um, we're, we're not accomplishing, we're not winning that particular war. We're not persuading people not to use drugs. And likewise, um, uh, prostitution in the places where it's legal um, is uh, is not uh, seen to be this exploitative uh, uh, industry the way it is uh, where it is illegal. When it's illegal, it's open to exploitation. In the Netherlands and in Nevada, where it's legal, there are, there are all types of, uh, of, um, of, of ways in which you can control the, the, the ills. Uh-huh. How about assisted suicide? Uh, assisted suicide is... Um, um, uh, uh, more like uh, dueling uh, to me. Uh, the problem with assisted suicide is that uh, there's the potential, because of the private nature of it, um, for it to not be genuine, but in fact for it to be murder or um, um, to cross uh, that particular line. So I'm, I'm less comfortable with assisted suicide than I am with legalizing drugs and prostitution. I, I think I agree with, and this gets back to the question to me, which I'm remembering, uh, uh, I agree with Professor Cole that um, the case against uh, outlawing assisted suicide or dueling uh, is stronger than the case against uh, outlawing drug abuse and prostitution. Um, and I do think that there are many respects in which the war on drugs that we're waging is being lost, and there, there are ways in which it's uh, being done in, destructive, in, a, in a self-destructive way. Um, I guess I, it seems to me that if a legislature were to totally legalize drugs or prostitution, not to mention assisted suicide or, or dueling, that it would really validate the behavior in question. There would be an explosion of people using drugs and engaging in prostitution, and uh, it would produce a world that would be worse than the world we have now. So I think what I would try to do is focus prosecutorial resources on the people who traffic drugs, not on small-time possessors uh, or users uh, of drugs, um, but I would retain laws against uh, drugs, and I would try to make much more aggressive and successful use of advertising to discourage people, particularly in the communities where drug abuse is a problem, to discourage them from using drugs. Professor Graham. I think it's uh, very misleading to talk about can government uh, legislate morality or virtue. Again, these words morality doesn't help. Uh, I'm not sure what that would mean. The government can legislate conduct. The government can prohibit prostitution. The government can prohibit the use of drugs, or at least try to, with the, not, not necessarily effectively. It can prohibit conduct. The government said that the stores can no longer racially discriminate, the uh, restaurants and hotels, and racial discrimination ended. Did they legislate morality? Well, they legislated what was thought to be, by most people, a very desirable uh, social policy. And so to say the government can't legislate morality has nothing to do with it. I, I would think perhaps uh, Professor Cole is right about the drugs. It doesn't seem that we're able effectively or that the, the net results, the consequences of trying to de- uh, uh, criminalize the drugs is working. On the other hand, I'm surprised so many people here are pro-prostitution. <laughs> <laughs> Here. I think those are the people we all want to be drinking with later on tonight, are the uh, pro-prostitution, pro-drug people. But anyway, uh, Professor Cole, my question is directed at you, Benjamin Skeen from the University of Denver. I'm kind of interested in how we determine what is a 
moral issue and what is uh, what is an issue that doesn't involve morality. I think uh, Professor Vera had a point when she was talking about how these areas are being clouded. I once rode a ski lift with a woman who told me that she thought that it was immoral to live in Colorado because of our overappropriated streams. And if you talk to the people who came up with the doctrine of prior appropriation, they would just look at her like she was nuts. This isn't about morals. This is about property rights. Maybe to make her argument for her, maybe we do have a duty to leave some water in the stream for the poor farmers, our fellow human beings in Mexico. How do we know the difference between an area that is moral and the government should stay out of it and an area that is um, something that the king would have taken care of in these days when uh, the distinctions are blurring? Yeah, that's precisely the point uh, that uh, Richard Posner makes in his book, The Problematics of Legal and Moral Theory. Um, there are as many moralities as there are people, uh, and and so that uh, uh, you know that supports the position that I'm I'm taking, which is that um, to the extent that we have uh, um, a universal sentiment uh, against particular types of harms like murder and theft. Um, we need to have uh, a legal structure that prevents those things from taking place. But as you try to, to go beyond that, you run the difficulty of, um, of um, choosing, picking and choosing one moral system over another. Now, I do agree with John Baker that we have uh, an American morality, an American uh, uh, Judeo-Christian um, moral code, and I don't believe in moral relativism. I think that the reason why we are who we are and why we are as successful as we are is because our particular moral code has uh, proven itself in the marketplace of moral codes over those of competing moral codes. Um, America is great because of what we believe, but uh, I don't believe that we can pick and choose at, at the higher levels uh, exactly which moral precepts we're going to uh, enact into law. Yes, over here. Uh, good afternoon, Ronald Ramo, Toronto Law School. Uh, this is a question for uh, Professor Calabrese and Professor Cole. Um, uh, Professor Calabresi, uh, earlier you discussed that uh, it seems you implied a great deal of people take their morals from uh, the law. Uh, the question is, is it a good idea to get people to stop looking at the law for their morality? And if so, how could society uh, make that happen? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I, I think that in the United States in particular, the fact that we have so many strong religious groups means that people here do look to, to private institutions for guidance on moral questions as well as looking to government for guidance. Um, I guess I think that um, when Americans look to government for guidance on moral questions, uh, they part of the reason that we do that is because um, for centuries and centuries, government has had laws, has had morals laws, essentially, uh, against the kind of conduct that we're talking about today. And um, that actually raises a question that I wanted to direct to Professor Cole, which is, if one is uh, Hayekian, if you believe in tradition and in spontaneous forms of order that grow up over long periods of time, and if the 
order of the common law tradition growing that goes back 800 years in uh, Anglo-American history uh, is one in which there have been categories of things that were moral offenses. Um, isn't there something um, really uh, radical and utopian about dispensing with that tradition and legalizing uh, things such as uh, drug use and prostitution and other things that historically have been made uh, have been made illegal. You uh, you take the, the award for being the first person to ever call me utopian. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, no, in fact, I think that I'm the conservative here. I'm the traditionalist because I. This is the uh, kind of argument we like at the Federalist Society. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm the one who wants to go back to our roots and our traditions of recognizing the distinction between uh, uh, ecclesiastical courts and law courts and to, to recognize the distinction between religion and law. And um, uh, we got to remember, drug laws are very recent in our history. Uh, my colleague George Fisher at Stanford um, is, uh, is about to publish a book called Alcohol Monogamy, which is the uh, history of um, drug laws in the United States. And one of the things he points out is that uh, we don't really see um, drug laws appear until uh, late in the 19th century, um, but they're not really drug laws. They are really anti-miscegenation laws that are directed against uh, opium dens and the exposure of uh, whites to uh, Chinese in the opium dens. Uh, and so what I want to do is go back to a time when it was uh, our, um, our social institutions, our, our civic uh, institutions that, that conveyed a sense of morality and, and our government stayed out of that uh, discussion entirely. Uh, Professor Gralia? Again, uh, we say should the government uh, uh, legislate morality well, why should people, and the question was, should people look to the government for moral guidance? Well, remember, in a democracy, the government is the people. The question is, what should the government prohibit? What should it use its laws, its ability to coerce? What conduct should it prohibit? Simply that. And if the majority of the people in a system of representative democracy think that certain conduct should be prohibited, it will be prohibited. Is that looking to government for morality? Or is that using government to uh, impose or instill morality? Well, again, I think it's using government simply to uh, prohibit or try to restrict or disallow conduct of which most people disapprove. Is it proper to have the government make uh, consensual dueling impermissible, a crime, as it is? Well, most people think that dueling uh, leads to uh, people getting killed, and that's a bad idea. <laughs> and that uh, hot-headed males will often feel it's their honor to throw down the glove and uh, let's duel. And uh, we think most people have not, not much difficulty difficulty thinking that that's really not a good idea. It leads to a lot of bloodshed, and uh, we lost poor Hamilton. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and therefore, we prohibit it. We're not looking to government for uh, to guidance of morality. We're telling the government to prohibit certain activities that we think are not socially useful. Go ahead. It's all simple. 
Yeah, it's very simple. Um, <laughs> one of the things that is troublesome about the, the argument um, that I was considering having to do with, with the way political rhetoric and debate is conducted in the country is uh, precisely the fact that I think there's too much morality injected into political debate. But I don't see how, and I understand it's kind of emptiness sometimes, and you can have, I mean, for every law that's passed, you have a very ugly political economy explanation having to do with with the role of interest groups and cycling and all of the kinds of things that Professor Cole was discussing. But, but in political debate, it seems to me, you're not going to be able to make rules that say you cannot talk about good and bad. You cannot talk about virtuous and not virtuous. You, you can't make rules for the kinds of arguments that people are going to make and the kinds of arguments that people find uh, persuasive. The young man was describing the woman who thought it was immoral to live in Colorado. Um, you know, a lot of my friends think it's immoral not to recycle. Recycle everything. It's, it's a question of morality. It's a question of morality to believe in global warming and believe that the government should, should uh, do our part in preserving the, the planet for future generations and so forth. And so part of the difficulty is, I think, part of the reason that I think we should be uncomfortable with the government legislating morality or having an entitlement to or being comfortable with it is that as soon as you go down that road, you're going to have everything, everything turn into an issue of good person, bad person, rather than is this a policy that makes sense for the, for the country to adopt. 